Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, like every other industry, the COVID-19 crisis has really affected the solar and storage industry. Supply chains are disrupted. Customer demand has gone down as economies suffer. And then customer demand has gone up in some segments as customers realize that they need their own reliable source of power. And there's a huge question mark on government policies towards clean energy, especially here in the U.S., People in the global solar and storage industry and customers here in the U.S. want information to help them navigate these uncertain times. And I found that one of the best information sources in the solar industry is IHS Market. And they combine specific research with analytics, number crunching, to help businesses and governments. It's my pleasure to have Cormac Gilligan, Associate Director of Solar and Energy Storage at IHS Market, as our guest today. He's like a human crystal ball for the global solar industry. And with everything going on with COVID-19, we could all use some more accurate information and forecasting. So welcome to the show, Cormac. Thank you, Barry. All right. Let's just kind of get started with a little bit of background about IHS Market. You know, Tell us about the services you guys provide and a little bit about the company, because a lot of people haven't heard of IHS Market. Sure. So IHS Market is a leading provider, as you mentioned, of data analytics and expertise. We service and provide data to a number of industries. Um, team that I work in is in clean tech and renewables, and we also sit within the wider um, energy division and natural resources. So you can think of those as like your typical oil, gas conglomerates. And then we also serve some other industries such as automotive, Financial, that's the market side of the business. And then we have some other expertise on economics and country risk. All right, good. And what are the information services that your team provides in solar and storage? Yeah, well, I'd like to maybe allow my colleague, Miguel de Jesus, who's part of our team, um, maybe give you, share you some insights on, on some of the services with respect to solar and energy storage that we have. All right, great. Yeah, of course. Yeah, this is Miguel de Jesus. I'm a research analyst at IHS Market on the Renewables Research Group. So in terms of some of our research practices within the Renewables Group, we like to call it downstream research practice, which is essentially our research of solar installation and solar demand by country. So this team is spread out all over the world and really closely tracks, for example, policy in each country and specific drivers of solar in every country. And through that analysis and through their own insights, they're able to build forecasts on solar demand through uh, the next several years. So that's one research practice. And then we have several research practices around what we call our upstream research. And so an example of that would be our module research practice, which is all research associated with solar modules. And so that covers the supplier competitive landscape, but also the component supply of modules. And then also another upstream research practice that we have is completely related to solar inverters. And so that's a research practice that I personally cover. And this obviously covers the entire competitive global landscape of inverter suppliers and the demand for solar inverters. You know, I would note that in terms of how our research practices work with each other, I think we're highly dependent on the analysis of each practice to really help inform our forecast, for example, I work very closely with our colleagues on the downstream 
demand team to help in, inform me of the certain solar drivers in a specific market. How might that impact the forecast for inverters in that market, for example? So, Miguel, what about batteries? It's becoming really yep. a, a key part of downstream installations here. Of course. In the- yep, we have a, a very large research focus around, first of all, ed- the demand for energy storage globally. So that's one research practice. You can almost consider that like a, a downstream type analysis of the energy storage space, the demand for energy storage. And then secondly, we've got a separate research practice specifically around batteries. So that's the production of batteries and tracking the competitive landscape of battery manufacturers. Yeah, that's really key. All right. Well, you've got the research background, both upstream and downstream, and you're covering all the bases. So now let's kind of get into the biggest uncertainty that the globe has is, you know, what impact on our industry, solar and storage, has COVID-19 virus had? You know, let's kind of talk about it in, in terms of equipment and then demand and then other factors of production like workforce and then incentives. Yeah, so I'll kind of share my initial views on maybe some of the key areas. So one, for example, everyone at the moment is probably considering how is the module supply chain um, functioning. Um, As most people in the industry would know, the production and manufacturing capacity, um, a large amount is within China. And certainly in, let's say, in February, there there was some impact. And it also coincided not only with COVID-19, but also with Chinese New Year. And at that moment in time, solar installations globally were really growing quite strongly year on year. And we actually had a almost a shortage of modules in some cases. So, for example, you had the market in Europe behaving or growing quite strongly, such as Spain, for example, big utility scale market there at the beginning of the year. You also had a return to growth in many other countries in Europe, such as Germany, Italy, a lot of the Mediterranean countries. You also had relatively strong demand in India, um, Japan, Australia, certainly with respect to utility scale. And then for a lot of the listeners, I'm sure everyone knows that the United States was a big source of demand. And what quickly followed um, was that manufacturing capacity really ramped up very quickly. As you know, a lot of manufacturers have even made some announcements about capacity expansions. Yeah, the module market has really caught up. And the situation now is primarily moved from a not so much a supply-led market, whereas more a demand side where we have reduced our expectation compared to what our forecast, let's say, was in at the beginning of January. And this has led to, you know, a significant amount of overcapacity for modules. So we're going into the situation around around this time, July and onwards, as we go into Q3, where there may be some overcapacity. And this may lead to some price declines as suppliers try to fulfill their pipelines. So that's just one example. On the battery side, with respect to battery cell manufacturing, Again, about according to our assessment, about 75% battery cell manufacturing is located within China, some of the other markets being South Korea and Japan. Again, around the time of February, March, there was a little bit of impact on the market in terms of manufacturing, but that has very quickly rebounded. And in a similar way, the market is certainly, there's quite a good supply of battery cells at the moment. And if anything, Due to COVID in certain markets, be they 
Europe, maybe the United States, um, end markets for battery cells, particularly such as automotive. There is an expectation and an estimation that the market has not been as strong due to COVID in terms of maybe sales. And so we've seen, again, a good supply available, especially then for other end markets, such as stationary energy storage. And you could see, as an end result, just a little bit of price reductions coming forward in the future. I'll let Miguel maybe add some comments with respect to the other key components, maybe such as inverters. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, with regards to inverters, I think the story, they have a similar story with what happened in the module industry and the battery industry. So what we noted sort of at the peak of the outbreak of the of COVID in China is that, of course, factories were shut down, but we noted that production of inverters quickly ramped back up. In fact, most Chinese suppliers were able to report back in saying that they've ramped back up to nearly full target production output by like late March, early April. On top of that, in comparison to the module world, global manufacturing inverters is actually quite a lot more geographically diverse. So half of inverter manufacturing is in China, but the other half is spread out in places like, you know, Germany, Italy, Spain, Vietnam, USA, Mexico. And so, you know, for that reason, because the manufacturing was spread out, we didn't see a huge impact in terms of inverter supply, even at the peak of the crisis. We're noting a similar concern, I think, with potentially weaker demand, especially in the second half of the year, where we could see a potential situation of uh, oversupply of inverters, actually, which may lead to, as Cormac noted, you know, additional price pressure and increased competition as a yeah. result. Yeah, I'll tell you, in the 20 years that I've been buying modules and inverters, I've never, ever once heard a manufacturer say, oh, we have plenty of supply. It's always like, get your orders in, next quarter's tight, we're already sold out. It's just the same for 20 years. But you know when there is plenty of supplies, you see pricing start to creep down. And it's been creeping down here in the U.S., at least as far as what I've been buying slowly over the last three or four months. And I think that's good. That's good for customer demand because everybody's trying to hit the economic threshold as much as they can. Now, I'm wondering what kind of differences you're seeing both in the U.S. and globally in terms of market segments, utility, C&I, residential. Yeah, sure. Maybe I can touch on distributed generation real quick. You know, we're noting that obviously with shelter-in-place restrictions and restrictions to labor, that solar insulation activity has obviously been weakened, especially we'd expect that in the second quarter of this year, uh, hopefully slow recovery through the second half. But specifically in residential, for example, you know, this is a business where in large part it's face-to-face sales, door-to-door sales. The installations are close to home, obviously. And shelter-in-place restrictions and workforce restrictions have really dampened that kind of activity. And, you know, we've noted, of course, that this the shelter-in-place restrictions are different depending on the state, and so there's different impact there. But as a whole, I think the residential segment was particularly hard hit. We consider the commercial segment, rooftop commercial segment. I think that there's even more challenges there as companies are, especially with general market uncertainty now, with the economy as companies are pulling back on their budgets, you know, we would expect that any sort of renewable energy targets and things like that may be uh, placed as a secondary goal right now. And potentially it may take a little bit longer for that segment to recover. Obviously it's early days and we're collecting data on that. And so that's something that we need to let the data bear out, but it is a concern of ours 
with regards to the commercial segment. And when we compare this with the utility segment, though, first quarter of this year, as, as the, the COVID outbreak really started to ramp up, you know, in the utility space, the reality was that those customers had already clinched their supply agreements for the hardware. And so in terms of in terms of the inverter shipments and the module shipments and even the beginning of the construction, it wasn't really impacted too much. And those construction sites and those construction workers were considered essential. And so business was almost as usual in the utility scale world. We're worried, though, that, you know, especially starting in the second quarter and through the second half, due to just general economic uncertainty, due to the potential of the difficulty to, to access capital, that the installations will either be pushed out to a few quarters out or decline slightly in the utility scale space. So that's something that we're, we're also watching for as well. The, the only thing I would add there is that's equally reflective of international markets. What uh, Miguel has mentioned, you know, with respect to residential and maybe commercial or CNI, and the same in utility scale, projects that were under construction, you know, they by and large have gone ahead. It's maybe more early stage projects, but I think what Miguel was also adding was, you know, the United States is quite a significant outlier, um, even globally, and in a good way in, in this instance, insofar as, you know, there was so much components safe harbored in Q4 and Q1 in order to get the uh, high rate of ITC, the investment tax credit, and the volumes were quite unbelievable, especially for utility scale. And so... I think developers and many of the industry, you know, it's incumbent on them to kind of execute and carry out, certainly with in terms of safe health and safety and best practice. But largely for utility scale, that can be achieved, um, albeit with a bit more planning involved and maybe a slightly longer time scale. But that's been our kind of feedback from industry so far. Yeah, and I'd echo that, you know, we're experiencing the same thing here in California with our residential commercial. The CNI has really slowed down because of uncertainty. We had a, you know, a few weeks of complete interruption on the residential side, solar and storage, but the demand came back. We're, you know, experienced with online sales and that that in some ways has increased efficiency and also from an in-home sales standpoint, you can pretty much count people always being at home. So you didn't have to worry about setting up an appointment. The challenge for us, and, you know, it's just frustrating on an ongoing basis, we have the demand, we have the contracts, we have the equipment, we can't get permits. And so it's really continuing to be a really long delay to get permits. We're waiting months for C&I permits just to kind of get started with it, not even review. And that's kind of the biggest holdback. But I think that's going to get eventually resolved, assuming the COVID-19 crisis starts to mitigate. So that's a good segue that I, into what the future is going to hold for us. Nobody really knows when we're going to have an effective vaccine. We talk about it, but we don't really know when it can be deployed or treatments that are going to be effective. So how can the solar and storage industry plan for this completely uncertain future that's based on medicine, not technology? Yeah, maybe I could start by having a conversation about what the upstream suppliers are doing, including inverters and also modules and batteries. But what we've noted, and this is commentary directly from the suppliers as well, is that we expect them to really try to keep a tight lid on inventory management, for one example, 
And so let's say in the residential and commercial space, an inverter supplier would typically like to have, let's say, 12 weeks of inventory on hand through the channel. And that's factoring in an assumption about the sell-through from these distributors and also just keeping a good stockpile of inverters. But they certainly wouldn't want to be in a situation that potentially we're describing, which is that oversupply situation where demand is weaker, but they got full ramp of production. And we start to see that inventory through the distribution channel start to increase. We certainly, I think suppliers certainly wouldn't want that to happen because that would definitely lead to sort of undue pressure in terms of pricing and, and things like that. I think that's one thing we're going to note from suppliers is really as they try to manage inventory through distribution. I think a second thing, just given the uncertainties with how the pandemic is progressing, is that I think suppliers are really going to want to be extremely conservative about their supply agreements and really want to set up potentially more multi-vendor agreements to ensure that they've got right amount of supply for the components that go into their inverters or their modules. And so not depending so much on one single source of their components or even depending on a single country, for example, for those components. And so I think we're going to start to see push for even more multi-vendor agreements and supply agreements for manufacturing locations in multiple countries. I think that's what you'll see. Yeah, and Miguel, that kind of brings up another question I had, which is you know the whole concept of a global supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know here in the U.S. the big push is to make everything domestically, but mm-hmm. I mean, heck, we don't even make capacitors and diodes here anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> it's absolutely essential to have a global supply chain. But how fast can companies reestablish the supply chains that are going to give them? the quality they require, even though pricing may be a little bit higher. You know, what's going to be the impact there? Yeah, it's a really good point that you mentioned, and this isn't just happening in the solar industry. This is happening across all industries, the notion that the global supply chain is really starting to diversify, and we see manufacturing locations start to really blossom in countries and in in regions that we haven't really seen before. In the case of solar, and I I can even speak specifically about the inverter suppliers, so there's a really good example of what's happened is that, you know, in the United States, of course, there's tariffs now for Chinese-made inverters, for example. And so as some suppliers have responded to those tariffs to try to avoid those tariffs by moving production out of China into locations like in India or in Vietnam or in Mexico or even locally in the United States. And we saw that shift occur over the course of, let's say, nine to 12 months, where the production in those manufacturing locations outside of China really started to ramp up. And so when you ask about like how fast suppliers, if they choose to, can sort of ramp up production in new facilities, I think that's what you can expect, because it's, it's definitely not an easy proposition to set up new manufacturing, especially locally, where labor might be more expensive or real estate might be more expensive, for example. Yeah, I was thinking about dusting off some of my old economics textbooks about, you know, globalization and countries should specialize in what they're good at versus countries specializing in just doing everything themselves. And I just don't see our global economy going back to tariffs and isolation. But who knows? I mean, there's just so many uncertainties. I was looking at my suitcase and I realized, gee, I haven't packed a suitcase in almost six months. I mean, travel is completely ground to a halt. I have zero air flights scheduled upcoming even though I've got all these credits on my airlines from flights that I canceled. But what's the impact going to be 
on how we all used to get together with trade shows and conferences. I mean, I know at least here in the U.S., SPI is scheduled for October in Las Vegas. And then what about international business deals? I mean, I had been traveling to Asia once or twice a year for the past dozen years, and, you know, I, I haven't gone in the last year. So how is, how is that going to change the industry? Yeah, we've seen some pretty interesting things from individual companies, actually, in terms of setting up quite unique, like, virtual webinars. You know, I can, I can name some that, that we've, Cormac and I have actually attended virtually. So, it's like, for example, like SolarEdge, very big, large inverter supplier, Huawei and SMA. You know, these are suppliers, for example, that have, um, in lieu of, you know, some of these more traditional in-person trade shows and conferences, and to help promote their products, have set up these virtual conferences where it's quite similar to what you would experience in real-life conferences where they've got speakers, they've got presentations on their products, they've got virtual booths and things like that. So it's quite interesting to see how the technology has enabled a virtual experience of these kinds of conferences and trade shows. And then in general, I think you asked about international business deals, and I think the trend is towards using more technology. I'll comment on that a little bit more. Yeah, everything Miguel said I agree with, and I think we're all getting used to it and have fast-tracked our usage of technology in terms of using conference calls, just getting used to less face-to-face. I mentioned it even to Miguel that I think if you've built a rapport with someone before and met them in person, it's obviously easier to kind of transition to this kind of virtual world. For those companies where you're doing a deal where maybe you haven't met them before, it certainly is going to be a little bit harder to build that rapport or trust. You know, I still believe that most people do enjoy and get greater value out of face-to-face where possible. But I think companies, even such as ourselves, are recognizing that there's still a little bit of efficiencies, obviously, in terms of how you do business um, to some extent. And maybe people realize that maybe I don't have to travel as much and, you know, go to every single conference, but provided you have that kind of strong relationships. And really, I think everyone is noticing that you have to be more engaged and more organized and continue to have those, you know, increased touch points with your customers, with your suppliers, and be really keeping quite tight tabs on it in a moment of a pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it. It's like we're back to the 1800s. If in the 1800s, if you wanted to go on a business meeting in Europe or Europe to the U.S., it would take you a month. That's how long it takes for me to set up a business meeting for one day because I've got to quarantine for two weeks wherever I land. And then in order to get back home, I got to quarantine for two weeks. I mean, those international business meetings, including conferences, are basically off the table you know, until we've got a good treatment. And it's regardless of how well the rest of the world is doing, it's basically the U.S. because, I mean, if I wanted to go to Dublin, I couldn't do it. You wouldn't let me go. I understand why. (laughs) Yeah. Huge changes. Well, all of our lives have been really focused on solar for a long time, decades plus. How is storage affecting the conversation and affecting our view of energy and of the solar industry and specifically? Yeah, I'll start on this. You know, to begin with, I think everyone in the industry over the last few years, even if you weren't directly involved in energy storage, I think every team and every person was really trying to improve their knowledge, certainly of technology and of terminology. 
But in terms of the actual market dynamics, you know, with respect to solar, it's obviously significantly smaller. But I think we are starting to see increasing adoption across, you know, all applications. So residential, commercial behind the meter and utility front of the meter. Obviously, there's very different market drivers and applications in each of those maybe segments. But within most of them, um, the market, even throughout the pandemic, has remained relatively strong. Similar to solar, the behind the meter market, you know, when we talk globally, has been a little bit impacted. I'll maybe let Miguel comment with respect to the United States, because that's been a little bit more resilient, especially in residential behind the meter. But in other markets where the grid is maybe a little bit more resilient or maybe not as wealthy, they have been impacted. So, for example, in Europe, which was relatively big behind the meter residential market, there has been a little bit of impact. That has been for a number of reasons, either supply of components, of finished batteries, that has caused a little bit of delay, and maybe we'll see a little bit more concern over spending money in terms of priority. That being said, we are starting to see some initiatives coming out. For example, in Italy at the moment, they're bringing in a scheme to support the residential market, and it includes not only solar but also energy storage, and it's across a number of colors energy efficiency measurements within the home retrofit market. And this type of example whereby you can choose maybe let's say two options out of four, and some of those other options are such as heat pumps, wall and roof insulation, maybe EV charging also. I see this as kind of a pathway and as kind of a program that we'll start to see more of in terms of retrofitting homes that are quite old and less energy efficient. And then just as part of wider funding that we're going to start to see, in general, the only good thing I think that's come out of COVID is that any money that we're starting to see You know, even in markets such as Europe with potentially a Green New Deal, the UK, they talk about build back better. So, you know, putting less money maybe towards fossil fuels and more towards more green initiatives. So that's certainly helping. And then just to touch on, you know, the front of the meter market, you know, considering certainly solar paired with energy storage, I think we've seen that market growing quite robustly. And we don't see that really slowing down. A lot of the big developers are getting more and more comfortable, even if they're not installing it at the very beginning of a installation. They may have set aside to put in the batteries at a later date, assuming that, you know, the battery prices reduce. So kind of a battery ready situation. So, yeah, it's all basically pretty positive for stationary energy storage. And I might let Miguel maybe give some insight on the U.S. residential behind the meter. Yeah, my quick commentary there is that I think residential solar is obviously an extremely hot topic and something that we're continuing to watch. We're seeing more and more on the inverter side, more and more inverter suppliers offering not just PV-only inverter solutions, but widening their portfolios to include hybrid inverters or battery-ready inverters. And I think everyone is ready and gearing up their portfolios to be adaptive to this shift towards a higher penetration of residential energy storage. And I think, you know, in five to ten years' time, you know, I think the vision is that there's a high penetration of energy storage in homes and less reliance on 
the grid and more reliance on self-consumption. And I think that's sort of the future that everyone is imagining in this industry, especially in the energy storage industry. And that's something that, you know, I think we're in early days right now, but we're really starting to see that shift happen again as suppliers start to release products that are specifically tailored to meet this new trend. Fifteen years ago, I gave up on installing energy storage, and then I started looking again seriously about three or four years ago. And right now, here in California, over half of the systems we're putting in are equipped with energy storage, and that kind of surprises me. But now I see that as that trend continues, we're probably going to be over 90%. Every installation we do, except for 10%, is going to be energy storage in three or four years. The dilemma that I have and this kind of touches on something you mentioned, Miguel. I agree that almost every inverter company is coming out with a hybrid inverter. The challenge is the system integration, the software, making sure that it works with rapid shutdown requirements and things like that. So although there's a lot of inverter companies that offer products, there's only a few that really get through that funnel of really checking off all the requirements that they need in order to be code compliant. And then second, and this is also the reason why I'm pulling out my hair, is the software for these systems is really complicated. It's not just what's operating the inverter with the battery and the solar. It's communicating with the customer. It's doing updates. It's talking to the batteries. And that's really hard to do. And there's only a few companies that have done a good job at that. And it's frustrating when you put in good hardware with bad software and you have a bad customer experience and not something I can accept. So that was a little bit of a surprise, and I hope that gets better over the next 6 to 12 months. Just one thing there, Barry. I would say in California, from our you know feedback and some of our surveys, that residential behind a meter has been quite strong, even a little bit throughout the pandemic, mainly because of things such as grid resiliency, um, having backup um, obviously, you know, some situations with some energy providers where there's cutoffs due to wildfires, examples such as that. Um, so, you know, customers are seeing battery, stationary battery energy storage as kind of their solution, even if it's only for a few hours. And this is kind of helping in, in such states as California. Are you seeing that? Well, I'll tell you, I'm so happy that we're in PG&E territory because they are doing such a great job of marketing for us not only with the power shutoffs, not only with occasional power failures just because, I mean, not to do with a wildfire, but a transformer blows up because there's too many people on the street plugging in their EVs and it blows up a transformer, but also because the way the rates have evolved, and this is something that was really influenced by lobbying by organizations like CALSA, but, you know, we're seeing 30 cent a kilowatt hour or more differences between peak and off-peak electric rates, and the cheapest rates are right now during the day, and that frustrates net metering because you're not getting the economic benefit. But if you put in a battery there, it's like the cure to that. So thanks to PG&E, I hope power gets better. I hope we don't have fires. But in the meantime, when they shut off the power, we just get phone calls, and it's a good solution for customers. Miguel, what are you seeing in the Texas market? That's where you're based. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I mean, in terms of tax, I think my comment there is that I think solar has recently really started to blossom here in a really significant way. And so I think that the market for solar in tax is only growing. In terms of the impact on COVID, the market here and recently, we haven't noted a very significant slowdown. I mean, I think, I think construction largely is still 
happening in Texas. So I think the market in Texas is very strong. Yeah, that's what I see. All right. We're almost done. I'm just kind of curious how you both got into the solar and storage industry. Cormac, I was looking at your background. You were kind of a civil engineer in railroads. Now you're doing solar and storage research. How did you make that transition? Yeah, I would say largely it's just, you know, as an engineer, I, I remember even seeing someone come in when I was in university, and I think they worked at Ford, and, you know, but they'd done a kind of a multiple jobs in multiple industries, and I think that was one of the reasons that attracted me to, particularly to engineering, was it's not so much what you do for that moment in time, it's kind of the way that your, I suppose, your brain works. And I took kind of a, a career break in the middle of my 20s, did a little bit of traveling after my time working on railroads. And I suppose it had something maybe in the back of my mind to do with, you know, sustainability. And but I got a job in the UK and I started my career yeah, working in market research and analysis in the solar energy. I have to admit that I, I kind of fell into it, but I can say that I'm going on nine years now and, and thoroughly enjoying it and very happy I get to analyze this on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, no, it's, it's an exciting industry. How about you, Miguel? How did you get into the solar industry? Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. I think my background is kind of varied, I think. So I, I started my career in information technology sales, and I think early on I had a very, I think, big appreciation for understanding I think complex solutions for customers and really working hard to understand the value proposition of the solutions and relaying those to customers. And so I think I've always had an interest in that. And then I think my career sort of transformed into operations and data analysis. So I've always had a love for analyzing companies, analyzing performance, analyzing sales and data analysis in general. And then I was really drawn to, you know, I think this career because just the huge opportunity in solar in general, I think that Solar's been around for a long time, but I think that we're still at the, I think the cusp where we're going to see even more explosion and growth in this industry. And I'm just highly drawn to the opportunity that that growth entails for everyone who's involved in the industry. Yeah, no, I agree. We've got lots and lots of growth ahead of us. All right. Well, how can people get in touch with you guys at IHS Market? There's a number of ways. They're more than welcome. We can share our email via on the website. Um, they can go on to LinkedIn. Miguel and myself are on there. They can equally go on to ihsmarket.com, and they can probably find us as well because as analysts, we're quite active in terms of writing insights, blogs, and hopefully in the not-too-distant future, we'll be at a trade show or conference. I'm afraid to say at the moment we won't be attending SPI, but in a normal year, we're at all the major trade shows, um, so we'd be more than happy to meet anyone there. All right, great, great. All right, well, that's all the time we have on this week's episode of The Energy Show. Thanks, Cormac and Miguel, for joining us, and thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, You can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.